My name is Keith Cowart, lead pastor of Christ Community, and each week I or one of our pastors will bring a message that we pray will stir your heart. We believe that God is the source of life and truth and that His Word is one of the primary means through which we make that vital connection with God. It's our hope that whether you're already a believer or just beginning to open your heart to God, that the truth of His Word would point you to Him. He came that you would have life and that more abundantly. Thank you for praying for myself and Eric Kennedy and Phil Webb and Nathan Hudson as we have been in Iraq. Um, We left on the 2nd of October, arrived in Iraq on the 3rd of October. We're supposed to be home on Wednesday, but uh, our flight out of our bill got canceled. So we had to spend one more day in Iraq before we got out, got back on Thursday. And my plan coming in to this morning was to... um, to, to give you a brief report on Iraq and then bring you a message on John 17. That was my plan even this morning uh, on my way here. But as we drove down to the church, I just kept wrestling with this sense that uh, to try to do both in one service was probably going to rob us of what I think God may genuinely want uh, to bring to us through the Iraq story as well as rob us of the depth of one of the most beautiful and powerful portions of the Gospel of John, and honestly, in the whole New Testament, John 17, which is the high priestly prayer. So I I didn't want to do injustice to that passage. So what I would like to do today is to bring you a report from our trip to Iraq Um, there actually is going to be a little bit of a connection to John 17 at the end that I really think will, will help bring it home in terms of what this means. You know, I'm very much aware that, uh, we, we as a church are a a church that's highly committed to missions. And one of the problems with missions testimonies is that, uh, often there's, it's hard to know what does this mean for, for me uh, what does this mean for you in particular? When you hear, for example, today about our trip to Iraq, wh- why is that important to you? What does it mean for you? I really believe there's something here that God wants to bring to all of us um, as I bring this report. So I want to do that. I just want to let you know what happened in Iraq um, and what I think God is, uh, is calling us to in the midst of it. Um, so we were there with uh, Frontier Alliance International, which is a ministry started by Dalton and Anna Lifsey. Anna grew up in this church, came out of our church. So we have a very personal connection to this ministry. Dalton and Anna have taken their four children under the age of seven uh, to Iraq where they now live. There are several other families that have moved there with them. They're doing great, great work in Iraq. And we went there, one, uh, just to support them, to encourage them, to learn more about exactly what they're doing so that we can determine how we may need to get involved in a deeper way in the future. I do want to tell you, thank you so much for giving two weeks ago. Uh, I mentioned that there was a critical need for medical kits. I didn't really push it, but just said there's a need if you want to give. Uh, You guys gave over $13,000 two weeks ago. We took all of that money. We bought medical kits with it in addition to some other money that came in from other sources. Um, When we arrived on Wednesday, and actually on Tuesday, um, we got there Tuesday night. Wednesday morning, our first full day in Iraq, we got up very, very early before daylight, drove two hours to a Peshmerga command center very near the front lines of the battle with ISIS. 
Now, the Peshmerga, if you're not into the whole geopolitical scene of Iraq, uh, you may remember that uh, the Peshmerga is the Kurdish militia. In a sense, it's almost like the American Revolutionary Army back in the 1700s. The Kurds are an independent people. They do not have an independent state. They live in a region uh, that, that filled, part of it is in Iraq, part of it is in Syria, part of it is in Turkey, and part of it is in Iran. So it's an area that is in all four of those nations. They are not a recognized state, but it is a people group that lives here in various parts of this area. Their army is the Peshmerga. They are the army that has been the, the ones that have primarily done the most damage to ISIS. You may remember that when ISIS first came in and took Mosul to be the, the, the headquarters of their caliphate, uh, it became the capital of ISIS in Iraq. The, the Iraqi army essentially abandoned the work and fled out of fear. It was the Peshmerga that fought the good fight and tried to, uh, to keep them out of uh, the Kurdistan region. They are a small army, they are a militia, but they are a mighty army. And uh, one of the things that Frontier Alliance is doing is actually trying to help provide additional medical care for the Peshmerga soldiers. We went to the command center. There, uh, you can see on the map here, Bashika is a city right outside of Mosul uh, that is also completely dominated by ISIS. ISIS has full control of Bashika. Just outside of Bashika is the front lines of the Peshmerga army. We were about a mile or two behind those lines initially at a command center where there was one single building with one room with a uh, curtain that ran down the middle of it, and the army hospital were the two beds on the other side of that curtain. And they had two medics that were there to take care of the needs of the Peshmerga. And this, uh, this particular area had over 7,000 soldiers. So you can see they were tremendously underserved from a medical standpoint. So we took medics with us. We also took these medical kits and uh, the main thing we were there to do was to train the, the soldiers how to do basic first aid to stop the bleeding when they were shot. Uh, the truth of the matter is the vast majority of the Peshmerga soldiers who die in battle die simply because they bleed out. They, they can't get to a hospital in time and they die from uh, just loss of blood. So we took these kits that would allow them... Uh, to, to be able to dress their wounds and stop the bleeding to get them over to this hospital. We had a chance to meet with the general uh, who is overseeing this portion of the Peshmerga army. This is uh, General Afandi. He is 84 years old. He is a legend in Kurdistan. He has been a leading uh, figure in most of their conflicts over the past several decades. He retired about 10 years ago, um, but when this particular situation arose, they talked him into coming back and leading once again. So we had an opportunity to meet with him, and uh, we were able to sit there, and I, I listened to Dalton and the other members of Frontier Alliance say to him, we are Christians. Uh, we are here to simply love you and serve you by providing medical care. 
That's all. That's the only reason we're here. We're, we are Christians, but we are here to take care of your medical needs. He graciously said, please, whatever you can do, we want to receive it. So he arranged for us to meet with um, a representative group of soldiers in the afternoon so that they could all be trained, so that they could go and train their soldiers in basic medical care. While that team was doing that work, Eric and, and Phil and myself and a couple of others actually had an opportunity to go up to the front line where we actually got to go into a bunker there on the, the front line. This is a, some, a couple of pictures from that bunker. You can see Bashika from this bunker. And uh, this is where the battle will take place. Um, and it's likely to begin any day now. Um, it could have begun last week. Uh, they keep saying it's going to begin almost any day. You will probably be reading about this in the next few days. You will hear about Bashika. If you look carefully, you will see that this is one of the key places where the battle is going to take place. That's exactly where we were uh, last week, meeting with the Kurdish army. Um, now, you may ask this question, and it's, a, it's an important question. It's actually one that I had. Why is Frontier Alliance focusing on taking care of the medical needs of the army? Well, for one, as I've already told you, it it was a huge need. There's no question about that. The need is tremendous. But why the army and not the refugees? Because I'm going to talk in a minute about the refugee crisis in this area. Hundreds of thousands of people have been displaced because of ISIS in the region. And so why are they focusing on the army? I asked Dalton that question. And his answer was this. He said, long range, our mission is without question to the refugees. That's who we ultimately want to have the greatest impact on. However, right now, we're just trying to keep them alive, keep this, these people alive because of the crisis. But secondly, and this was a very important part of it, the, the Kurdish people, it, their culture is a shame and honor-based society. It is a shame and honor-based society. So by helping to take care of the needs of the people who are most honored by the Kurdish people, which is their military, they see their military, they hold their military in highest honor. By taking care of their most honored people, FAI FAI is sowing seeds of goodwill. I can't begin to tell you how much the people there love this ministry. These are Muslims But they are so glad that FAI is there because of everything they're doing. We talk to doctors. We talk to uh, military people. We talk to people in town. First of all, the Peshmerga and the Kurdish people love Americans because we have had their back. We have helped train them and and, uh, supply them. But they are there, and they, what they are seeing is uh, that the love of Christ exhibited in very concrete ways. And what's happening is that there are tremendous seeds of goodwill being planted that prayerfully down the road will result in a harvest for the kingdom of God. This is not a quick work. This is not a work where you just gather 100,000 people in a stadium and see thousands and thousands of people saved. This is very, very difficult work with a people who are very resistant to the gospel. But they are there. They're doing an incredible work. And it was an incredible opportunity. Go to the next slide. You'll see the team. Um, well, let's best back up. Go. Was there not a slide? Yeah, okay, this is a, uh, these are pictures of the team training the, the, the Peshmerga army. They did an incredible job of doing it. A lot of goodwill there. Uh, very awesome time with, uh, with this medical team. So if you see in the next few days 
headlines in the papers about the battle around Mosul, and particularly about the battle that rages in Bashika. Just remember that it's these people who are fighting that battle. Uh, keep them in your prayers. Keep, uh, we've got one of the guys that went with us, uh, Nathan. Uh, Nathan stayed over there. He didn't come home. He's going to stay there. He is a trained medic, and he is extending his stay so that he can be present when the fighting starts so that he can provide some basic medical care. He's already put the call out to three or four of his colleagues. They are making plans to get there as soon as possible so that they can uh, bring even more medical care to this group of people. So be in prayer for them as they do that. Um, the second place that we visited is a, was a city called Dahuk. Dahuk is in a little north of Erbil, uh, I'm sorry, north of Mosul, uh, near the Turkish border. In fact, uh, Dahuk is, is, feels more like a Turkish city than an Iraqi city. Um, and one of the things about the, the, the region of Dahuk is it is surrounded by refugee camps that have anywhere from 20 to 75,000 people in them, all of whom have been displaced by ISIS. If you remember a couple of years ago, I think it was about two years ago, uh, you, may have remember, you may remember reading about a group of people called the Yazidis. The Yazidis, it, it is a completely isolated group of people. It is an ethnic group that has essentially had nothing to do with the outside world because they are despised and hated by everybody around them. So they keep to themselves. Well, ISIS determined to wipe them out. ISIS came in, killed thousands of them on the spot. Many of them escaped to a mountaintop, and they were on this mountain surrounded by ISIS. The U.S. and the Iraqi army came in and helped uh, rescue most of them. But several thousand, somewhere between five and 10,000 women and children were uh, abducted by ISIS and taken to the ISIS strongholds. Um, so this is a place that is surrounded by these, um, these refugee camps. On the first day in Dahuk, we met with um, a man who has, along with his wife, spent the last two years doing everything they can to rescue people out of Mosul. The husband is a guy who uh, leads a, a, a team of people that actually go into Mosul where ISIS is in control, rescue people out of Mosul. They've rescued over 100 families in the last two years. His wife, um, who is in this picture, has been recognized by the U.S. State Department as a world hero because of their work. Uh, we, di- we didn't get to meet her. We were talking to her husband, and uh, we didn't know he was her husband. We didn't know the, he was connected to her at all, but in the middle of the conversation, it became clear that he was the husband of, of this woman. It's amazing family that are, are laying their lives on the ground daily to try. In fact, we had, we had to cut our conversation short. In the middle of the conversation, he got a phone call and he said, okay, we've got an operation that's going to take place tonight. I've only got about 15 more minutes and I've got to go because we're going to be getting another family out tonight. Uh, so we got a chance to meet with him. Dalton and uh, FAI are connecting with people like that so that long range they can get a presence in the refugee camps helping to take care of these people who've been displaced. One of the things that we learned is that these people who are living in these camps are likely to be there for up to 18 years. I don't know about you, but when I think of a refugee camp, I'm thinking a few months 
They're living there until they can get back to their homes. What Dalton explained to us is that their home has been completely desecrated by ISIS. It's been destroyed but dishonored more than anything else. These people will not go back to their homeland. They have nowhere else to go. So they're essentially living in these refugee camps until the next generation of Yazidis grows up and then they may go back to their homeland. So it is an incredible, monumental, and mind-boggling crisis uh, of of human suffering. Um, On the second day, we had an opportunity to meet with someone that I was hoping to get to meet. Uh, He is a free Methodist pastor in Dahuk, Iraq. We are a free Methodist church, in case you didn't know that. Um, We have, this is actually a beautiful story. We had one church in in Iraq several years ago, and it was in Baghdad. It was the only free Methodist church in all of Iraq. And in the the, the war to, to take Saddam, that church was destroyed by a bomb. It was completely demolished. And those Christians who were in, and they were all Iraqi Christians. These were not missionaries. These were Iraqi Christians. They scattered into the Kurdish region for protection. And where they landed, they planted churches. So today, we don't have one church in Baghdad. We've got four churches scattered in four different cities in Kurdistan. And again, it's amazing... I mean, I don't know if you've read the book of Acts lately, but that's exactly what God did with the early Christians in the book of Acts. They were in Jerusalem. They were being persecuted. They were just sent out into all parts of the world, and everywhere they went, they took the gospel. We have seen the same thing happen in Iraq, uh, even in our small little free Methodist world. Well, I, I I was able to meet with this pastor. He is on the right. He leads the entire work in Iraq. The man on the left is a guy named Ahmed, and Ahmed is from Egypt, and Ahmed came to Iraq because God saved him in Egypt, and he had a burden for these Yazidi people, and he came there to help. He now leads the outreach effort um, for the Free Methodist Church in Dahuk. Uh, So we had an opportunity to actually go to one of the villages where one of these camps is situated. Um, this was a smaller camp with only 20,000 people in it. Um, and we couldn't go into the camp, uh, quite frankly, because it, well, for, there are a lot of reasons. But one is they really don't want a lot of outsiders coming in and just gawking at the people. And quite frankly, that is not what we wanted to do. Uh, in fact, you're not going to see hardly any more pictures. I, I didn't take any pictures when we were in the camps. I mean, to be completely honest, it wasn't because no, people said we couldn't. everything in me just said it's completely inappropriate. I mean, this is not the kind of thing you go in and just snap pictures of. I mean, these are people who are living in unimaginable uh, conditions um, because of the evil of ISIS. Um, So we didn't go into the camps, but here's the thing. The camps filled up almost immediately after they were displaced. But there were still a lot of people who were initially abducted by ISIS who escaped. And as they began to look for refuge, there was no room in the camps. So they had to just basically squat, find a a house or a shelter of some kind to live in around the camps. But these people are in the worst shape of all because they're not getting any of the international aid that comes into the camps. So they're living outside the camps with no aid. Well, that's where the Free Methodist work is primarily targeting. It's targeting these people who live around the camps. Um, So we got to go there, and we went in three homes on the second day. And the first home we went into, it was a home that was probably 
1,000 square feet, maybe 1,200 square feet. There were seven families living in this house. Seven Yazidi families. All of them had been abducted by ISIS when ISIS originally went into the area and had been taken into Mosul as as captives to be enslaved. But they had escaped. They had gotten out. And they were now living together in this place. There was an old woman who came in and she, she offered us water. We sat on the floor and uh, she said, I would like to tell you my story, but to be honest with you, I can't tell it without weeping, and I, and I really don't want to, 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 to weep before you. So I would like for my granddaughter to come and tell you her story. And, and we said to her, I mean, it, our, our first response was, please, we don't want to cause pain. We've not come here to cause you pain. You don't have to tell us your story. We just have come here because we want you to know that you're loved, and we want you to know that you are seen. You're seen. There's a God who sees your suffering, and it's his heart that's brought us here to you. But she wanted us to know her story. She told us the story of how she and her family were captured by ISIS on that mountain, and how they were taken to Mosul, how all, most of the men were killed. Um, they, all they wanted were women and children, to be honest with you. They didn't want the men. They wanted the women and the children because of what the women and children could bring them. They took the boys and they put them into training to become ISIS soldiers. I'm talking about kids that are five, six years of age that were being brainwashed, indoctrinated in ISIS hatred and taught how to fight at five and six years of age. Um, The women were sold as sex slaves. Uh, The girls were taken by ISIS fighters to be their sex slaves. I know this is a little... Graphic, it's not very tasteful, but I'm just trying to tell you, this is the honest truth of the situation. Unimaginable suffering. Uh, This girl got out because she was responsible, she and some of her friends were responsible for preparing the meals for the soldiers that that they belonged to. And uh, they found some medicine. They were able to determine that the medicine's side effect was drowsiness. They crushed up all the pills, put it into their food, served it to them, and when it knocked them out, they all got out and escaped to the nearest village. Um, So that's how she escaped. But as she's telling us the story, she begins to tell us about a sister and a brother and a mother who are still in Mosul who are still under ISIS captivity. And their hearts are heavy right now because they know that the offensive to liberate Mosul is about to begin. And uh, the hard thing about that is they have no idea what's going to happen to these family members when that happens. Will they be killed? Will they be taken to the next place that ISIS goes? Will they be rescued? They're praying, of course, for that, but they don't know. We went to a second house, and uh, there in the second house, we were taken to a room And in that room, there were three teenagers, I would say, maybe early 20s, but teens, um, all severely handicapped. And their story was that ISIS came into their village and uh, did not believe them when when they said they were handicapped, didn't believe, they didn't believe they were handicapped. They thought they were faking. So they beat them to within an inch of their life, these poor handicapped children, Um, because they didn't believe they were actually handicapped. The truth is, that is one of the things that the Yazidi mothers told their children, is when when ISIS comes in, act like you are a handicap, act like you're disabled, and maybe they will leave you alone. 
So ISIS got to the point where they didn't believe any of these children, and they just beat them and left them for dead. These children survived, and they were now in this room uh, without medical care, without the basic needs of life. But praise God, the Free Methodist Church pastor and this guy, Ahmed, Ahmed left with a burden on his heart to say, I don't know how we're going to do it. We're going to take care of those kids. We're going to take care of those kids. And um, our team was moved to say, we want to help in some way to take care of those kids. And so we've, we've done that. Um, we then went to a third home. And in this home, another teenage girl came out. And she, again, told us her story of how she had been captured, how she had been terrorized, and how she escaped. And then she took out her phone and she showed us pictures of her two brothers, fully dressed in ISIS garb, fully indoctrinated in ISIS hatred, uh, showed us pictures of, um, the, of her sisters who were still there held captive, asked us to pray for them. And we had an opportunity to pray over them. One of the things that was just heartbreaking, honestly, was when we left, Pastor Weam said to me, he said, you know, from an earthly standpoint, uh, these girls' future is hopeless. Many of these young girls are committing suicide. And here's why. Because, because they have been violated by ISIS, no Yazidi man will have them. And because a part of the Yazidi culture is that it is strictly forbidden to marry outside of the Yazidi ethnic group, these women are bound to a life of, of, of being alone and having no husband or children to help take care of them. Uh, and he just said, from a human standpoint, they're, they're, their whole lives, they have nothing to look forward to. They have no hope for the future. But again, the message of the gospel is coming into this place. You, you know, something that just really, again, just struck me about how God works. The Yazidi people, I said this earlier, have been one of the most isolated people groups in the world. Uh, they are a, an identified people group, but they have been completely isolated because they are so despised, and they want nothing to do with the world around them. It's a, incredible how God has taken something that is pure evil, which is exactly what ISIS is and what they have done to these people. God has taken something that is pure evil and he has brought them into a place where for the first time in history, they are hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they're seeing Christians who have come or are coming to them to care for them and to express God's love for them. Uh, it's, just a, it's, an, it, it, it's absolutely amazing how God can take something so dark and so evil, and actually use it to reach people for the first time in history. As we were leaving that place, um, I, I asked Pastor Weam, I said, how responsive are these people to the gospel? Are the, are, are the Yazidi people responding well to the gospel? He said, no, not at all. Um, he said, the truth is that they are completely indoctrinated from childhood that every other belief system is wrong and they are deeply, deeply committed to their own belief system, which is a strange mixture of Zoroastrianism, Judaism, Christianity, and paganism. I mean, it's just a weird conglomeration of, of beliefs, but they are deeply, deeply committed. But this, then he told me this story, and, and I've actually heard about this 
in books. I have heard uh, uh, to people who are working in the Middle East talk about this. This is the first time I've personally talked to anyone who has actually seen with their own eyes what God is doing. I want you to hear this testimony. He said to me, these people are not responsive to the gospel until Jesus comes to them in a dream. He says this is happening all over the Middle East. All over the Middle East, Muslims are saying, this man came to me in my dream, and he introduced himself to me as Jesus Christ. And he said to me in my dream, he said to me in my dream, you have been held captive by a false religion. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he said, when people begin to have these dreams, suddenly their hearts are open to the gospel. He told me that his church is full of, uh, of people who are now believers in Dahuk. And he said at one point, he asked them, how many of you have had that dream? He said 80% of the people there had had a similar kind of dream where Jesus showed up in the middle of their dream and announced to them, I am the Savior. Amen? Um, he had told us the story of one young girl as we were driving uh, he said there was one particular Yazidi young girl that had been very resistant. They had been trying to reach her for two years, and she had never responded to the gospel. And then one day, she just happened to mention to Ahmed that for the last two months, she had been having a dream every night where a black snake would come to her in the middle of the night, and this snake said to her every single night, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. She said, she, she said I have the dream every night this happens. Ahmed said to her, tonight, before you go to sleep, would you just pray and ask Jesus to help you? And so she did. So that, home, that night she went home, and, and before she fell asleep, she prayed and said, Jesus, would you help me in this matter? He didn't see her for three more days. When he saw her, she said, I want you to know what's happened. For the last three nights, Jesus has come to me in my dream. And on the third night, Jesus went to the snake and crushed its head and killed it. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? I, mean, I immediately, I mean, I just, uh, third day. I'm thinking third day, third day. Uh, you, you think back to the story of Genesis where, where God says to the snake, you have, you have struck their heel, but my, I will send one who will crush your head. And when did he crush his head? On the third day when he was raised from the dead, came out of the tomb and destroyed the power of Satan. Um, now this girl has been saved and she will be baptized very soon. So I, I want you to know that there are incredible things taking place. This is not ultimately a story of defeat. It is a story of where God is moving. And I've got to ask us to think about this, you know. Um, it's fascinating to me, and quite frankly, not just fascinating, but very convicting, that here in this place, and this is, these are stories that we hear on a regular basis around the world. But the question is this, why is God breaking through in supernatural ways in places like Kurdistan or these refugee camps where these Muslims are being held? And, and as I think about it, I, I believe that the reason is this. I believe that the reason is this, that, that God breaks through in supernatural power 
where there are people who have no other hope, where there are people who have no other way. And I think about us as Americans, and quite frankly, I'm, I'm, I'm coming continually closer to a, a conclusion that one of the reasons we do not see God working in miraculous ways here as he does in many parts of the world is because, quite frankly, deep down, we don't think we need him. We've got everything we need. We've got all the money we need. We've got all the stuff we need. We've got our doctors. We've got everything we need. And quite frankly, we are not at a place where we are on our knees crying out and saying, God, if you don't show up, we have no other way. If you don't show up and do something. And it just struck me that here are people who are serving. And what they're saying is human effort, human effort can't save anybody. Human effort can't save one soul. But when Jesus shows up, people are getting saved. And Jesus wants to show up. Jesus is showing up where there are people who are in that place of desperation. And it just challenges me. I mean, I I gotta tell you, I come back saying, God, would you bring us as a people, would you bring us here at Christ Community to a place where we so want to see you move and do things that only you can do? that we would begin to see those kinds of miracles taking place even in our midst. And let me say lastly, that the, the, the second thing that I, I, and this is where it connects with John 17. Uh, how many of you know that John 17 is, is the prayer that Jesus prays for his disciples? And ultimately he says, and Lord, I'm not just praying for these, but for everyone who will believe, which includes you and me. Do you remember the prayer? Go home and read it in preparation for next Sunday, but I'm gonna go ahead and give you a little bit of a a preview because it connects to what we're saying here. When you look at what Jesus prays, the heart of his prayer is that his disciples would be ready to pick up the mission that he, his portion of which he has now completed. He says, I have finished my part. Now, Father, I am sending them into the world and I want you to give them everything they need to continue this mission that I began. It's interesting that Jesus prays for protection. He prays for protection. But he prays for protection that God would protect them as they go into a world that hates them against an enemy that wants to destroy them. Jesus says, I am sending them into that world that hates them and against an enemy that wants to destroy them. God be with them and protect them. You know what he's mostly concerned about? Protect them from being divided. Protect them from from no longer being united. Protect them from walking away from the truth. And protect them from being conformed to the world. Can I just tell you that again, I'm increasingly convinced that, that we as American Christians, quite frankly, um, are, are probably among one of the first generations of Christians that have assumed that the, the greatest benefit of being Christians is that we are, are blessed and happy and have all of our needs met and, quite frankly, are, are not expected to do anything off the edge. I can't tell you how many people said to me, you're really going to Iraq? Why would you go to Iraq? And why would this family take four small children to Iraq? I mean, what are you thinking? Why would people, why would people want to go to a place like this? And the other answer is, 
Because God sent his son to die for these people. And God wants them the, the, a witness to the message of the gospel with these people. And God has promised to be with them, to strengthen them, and to give them everything they need. But he has called them into a dangerous place. He's called them into a dangerous place. I, I was reading a book by Erwin McManus several years ago. And McManus makes the statement, and this really struck me like a lightning bolt. He said, I have determined that one of my missions in life is to completely stamp out that saying that the center of God's will is the safest place to be. You ever heard that statement? that the center of God's will is the safest place to be? He says, have you read the Bible? Have you read the New Testament? God is continually sending his people into places that aren't at all safe from a worldly standpoint. Now, let me, let me clarify something. This is really important. From an eternal perspective, the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. No question about it. From an eternal standpoint, but from an earthly standpoint, to be in the center of God's will may actually mean that he sends you into something that is way bigger than yourself. Something that you can't, you have no idea how you're going to do what he's calling you to do. Something that's going to stretch you way beyond your resources. Something that's going to make you extremely uncomfortable. These are the kinds of things God does in order to bring the gospel to the whole world. Now, again, for most of us, that doesn't mean that God is saying to all, half of us here, I want you to go to Iraq next week. Maybe some of us, I can tell you this, there was a group of people who were there on the front end of our trip, three people from Atlanta, all 20-somethings, all of them praying very seriously and pretty much committed to coming back full-time to work with this ministry. There may be some of you that God is calling to Iraq. We, we took a young man with us whose name is Nathan Hudson. Nathan's not a member of our church. He's been involved in a ministry that's located here in Columbus called the Timothy Group. He has been trained in all kinds of survival techniques, discipled in that kind of a setting. This guy's 23 years old. Uh, I don't, I, it'd, take me, it'd take me hours to tell you everything we learned about this. We decided he's the world's most cr interesting Christian. Uh, every time we had a conversation with him, we were just kind of shaking our heads saying, are you kidding me? 23 years old. Uh, he's been imprisoned in, La in Laos already, trying to rescue people out of sex trade. Um, he was going, he's going in, I don't know if I should even say this. He's going to a country that is strictly forbidden Christians in the next few weeks to deliver Christian materials. I, I was thinking about the shoe boxes earlier, and I'll be totally honest with you. There, not too long ago, I would have said, you know, I'm just not into tracts and, and Christian literature. But I want to tell you, Nathan says, there are people getting saved all over the world because this literature is getting to them. And they are hearing the gospel for the first time in places where the gospel is strictly forbidden. This 23-year-old kid's going into places like this. 23-year-old kid uh, has already been a captain of a fish, commercial fishing ve uh, vessel in Alaska doing this to save every penny he could save just to keep doing these kind of missions. He chose to live homeless for a year. He lived in a tree. Not a tree house, a tree. He tied a cot in, up on a limb of a tree and lived in it until he fell out and landed on his head, almost killed himself. Then he moved to a drainage pipe. And he lived in a drainage pipe or in the tree for a year so that he could save every dime he could make 
in order to be able to go into these parts of the world and to save as many people as he can save. Isn't that amazing? Um, I was humbled. I was humbled to be around this kid. And I was humbled to see a faith that said, you know what? I'm, not, I'm just not interested in living a safe, easy, comfortable Christian life. I want to be on the edge where God is at work. And can I just say this? For most of us, it's not going to be going to Iraq or, or Laos or wherever. It, for most of you, it's going to be waking up every day and realizing that I am walking into a mission field right where I live and work every day. But deciding to lay aside the fear of rejection, deciding to lay aside the fear that someone may think I'm strange, deciding to lay aside the fear of losing your dignity or reputation in the eyes of some who wouldn't think very highly of you living openly as a Christian, or that he may actually call you to take a stand that might actually cost you something. But it would be an opportunity to be right in the center of where God is at work. It may not be safe, but you may be surrounded by the presence and power of God in your life in a way that you've never experienced before. I'm just asking today to listen. To listen to what God may be speaking to listen to where God may be calling you to move to the edge of your walk, not where it's safe, not where it's comfortable, but where it's gonna require you to die to self and surrender to the power and presence of the Holy Spirit so that he can use you in ways that you can't imagine. Right here, right here in Columbus or wherever else he takes you. I'm gonna ask those who are serving communion to go ahead and come up and prepare the elements, and Jay, if you'll come out and prepare to lead us. But I, I wanna challenge you, before you begin to respond, I wanna challenge you simply. Would you take a minute to listen? Would you just open your heart and say, Lord, what is it that you're trying to say to me today in these words? Would you just bow your heads for a moment? And while they're preparing up front, would you just whisper a prayer in your own heart and say, Lord, what is it you're trying to tell me? To what are you calling me as one of your children?